0: Just the way I suggested here a couple of weeks ago. I knew that the gas shortage couldn't be all bad. It has changed America's habits in so many really significant ways. For example, uh, here's a note here from the Wall Street Journal. It says, uh, a book wholesaler now peddles copies of novels to customers waiting online in a Valley Stream New York gasoline station. And they're buying books like they're going on a style. They're sitting there reading, and, uh, you know, next thing you know, who knows, you know? We may create a literate nation, just through the fact that nobody can get any high octane, you know? I'm just delighted. What's next? I mean, conversation may come back, all kinds of things. Yeah. Of course, right now, we're in the beginning stages of this whole phenomena, and the conversation that you usually hear in gas lines consists of stuff like this. Hey, what are you training now? what are you to get ahead of me, you? That's uh, just about what you usually hear. Uh, do you agree? Have you heard that yet? You haven't. Well, that's, you, that's because you're the only guy that I know who drives an M4 tank. I see. I see. I see. Well, of course, you're like, uh, we, we you're, <laughs> all present company exempted. You live in Connecticut, and people are so polite in Connecticut. There's none of that stuff. I mean, you know, it's not like Jersey. No, no, no. You just cross the state line. It's like the, the difference between the, the Winkies and the Munchkins. Uh, you just cross the state line. It's very different, though. Yes. Are you going to agree that people who live in New York are different from Jerseyites? Distinctly. And I can tell you, people who live in Kansas are very, very different, say, from uh, uh, Connecticut people. Yes. So it follows then that Connecticut people are different from Jersey. And how are they different? Well, they're they're elegant. There's a certain style. Uh, yes, that's true. There's a certain uh, there's a certain appreciation of the finer things that you see in Connecticut that you don't see. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you something about the Connecticut that impressed me highly. I was walking down a street the other day in Connecticut, and I was very impressed with the garbage you see on the streets in Connecticut. It's much higher quality than you see, say, in Plainfield. Uh, and, I, and I'm very, very impressed. Uh, so would you please give me a little music to salute uh, the... That's right. right so it's about time we recognize Connecticut. I'm the Sheik of Bear, oh, 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 I love to just walk around. At night, baby, when you're asleep Yeah, into your tent Out <laughs> Oh, the stars above will shine And will light our way to love, 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 love You'll rule this land with me I'm a sheep, sheep, sheep A bear, ruby All together, sing it I'm a sheep, a bear, rubby, Yeah, yeah these are tempted. this is the second part Into your tent aisle <laughs> 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 More no more, yeah. Oh, that's just great. Oh, that's well. I do that to clear the sinuses. Yes, sir. That's better than dristan, I'll tell you. It's even more fun than Xlax. lax <laughs> da and now to uh, clear the air and to bring us back to reality, please, Joe, if you will, Joe. catch a live trout at the International Sports Show. Talk to famous athletes. Learn fly casting from an expert. Bid on a deluxe travel trailer at our daily Those auction. Birds. See trained animals. Plan your 74 family vacation on wheels and <laughs> the woods on the water at the International Sports Show. Visit every manufacturer of recreational vehicles in one hour. The largest display ever under one roof. The New York International Sports, Camping, Vacation and Travel Show. March 9th through the 17th at the New York Coliseum. It's bigger than all outdoors. <laughs> oh, yes. Special discount tickets are available to WOR listeners by mailing in a card to Sports Show, Care of WOR, New York, 100000018. You'll be sent as many discount tickets as you request. Yeah, it was nice. I, I felt good about singing that. Oh, by the way, I tell you the reason that I'm feeling. Uh, Unaccustomedly uh, manic tonight is because I had a very exciting night watching late late television uh, the uh, last night. In fact, uh, I think people who uh, go to bed, uh, many of them do. We have a nation of early goer to bedders. We go to bed earlier than most people in the rest of the world. Did you know that? Oh yeah. In fact, it's almost impossible to see a Spaniard in Spain going to bed earlier than four in the morning. He's having dinner about 10, you know, 11. Yeah. Oh, sure. It's only here in America. Early to bed, early to rise. It's that whole, uh, that work Protestant ethic. Yeah, get out early with your tail, bushy tail, you know, getting in line at the Shell Station at the crack of dawn. You know, all these things. And it's led us nowhere. It's led us nowhere. It's just, uh, in fact, I think going to bed early... Is the quickest way to split the family into fragments let's figure it out now you're not with anybody when you're asleep. no way you are communicating to no one and uh and if you're early goer, the better, of course, even your dreams tend to be dull and stodgy. You know everybody in your dream reads the reader 's digest, you know that kind of thing. <laughs> If you stay up a little later, you see the headiness of the early morning hours when you you glance over at your you know your, your electric West clocks, and uh, you look over there, you know your dollar 98, the one, the one you picked up at Corvettes on the sale that time, and it makes the hum uh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I've, I, I've uh, seen electric clocks that you know and they make ominous tickings as you look over there, and it says 10 after four. You know you've got to get up, see it's a 7.30. There's a certain heady, the hell with it all, quality that enters your life at that point. I mean, you, you've hit the point of no return. You know, three hours of sleep, what's it going to do? Three hours of sleep is just a soup son. The early goer-to-bedders are addicted to sleep, I've discovered. And sleep is largely an addiction. That uh, some of the greatest men in the history of mankind got by on less than five hours of sleep a night. Thomas Alva Edison... And he did better than most of you. Thomas Alva Edison rarely ever slept over four hours a night. In fact, he, he, uh, he insisted that people would wake him up and he'd go right back. He said he, said he felt much better. I have to agree with them. That's, that's true of me. And uh, yeah, oh yeah. And uh, so late night television is not because I'm a television fan. Don't confuse that issue. Not at all. Late night television, for students of sociology, yeah, or students of his fellow man is invaluable, because at late night television, they let it all hang out. Uh, <laughs> they really do. And you know, early in the evening, they have uh, Debbie Reynolds movies. Uh, they they tend to, uh, you know, they tend to have things like uh, the Waltons and uh, you know this nice uh, family stuff. But as it, as time gets later, the stuff gets racier and racier. Until maybe at three in the morning or four in the morning, you see stuff, man, that you just you just you know you'd love to see on a screen. If you stayed up late enough, you would. For example, it was a film late last night that was shot in South Africa. Now, you don't see many South African movies early in the evening. It was in color, and these guys were out uh, in a jeep, and they were well. Actually, it was a rover, it was a Land Rover, and they were in the desert, and it was a, it was a film about uh, a pilot. And uh, the great opening scenes were him crashing in the desert in what looked to me like a Cherokee 180. Really realistic. I can tell you this as a pilot. He he. It was it was realistic, all right. And it was in color. You could see the desert coming up, and it was shot in South Africa in the desert. Well, later on, there was a scene that uh, that must be uh, relayed to you early goer to betters because this is the kind of stuff you miss you know, sticking around early and seeing all those old Charlton Heston films where he's playing Moses or God or something, and Debbie Reynolds where she's playing 12 forever. Uh, you you miss so much of the good stuff. They were driving in the Jeep, see, <laughs> and, and here they are out in the desert, and they've got, you know, it's the sun is beating down, and they're wearing desert clothes, and this is an absolutely waterless desert, nothing but sand. When the Land Rover stops. It's an open Land Rover. It looks like a Jeep to you, and it's a Land Rover that it, it stops, and they can't get it started again. So it will, will not kick over. So one guy says to the other guy, Oh, he says, I say, the battery's down. The battery is dead. And so at that point, he jumps out and he runs around and he opens up the hood and he looks in it. And he says, Well, he says, I, I say, he says, I, I see why well, well, we have, we have, the battery has no water in it. The battery has no water in it. At which point, they had this beautiful girl with them. At which point, they can't figure out how to get this water for the for the battery. At which point, the two men send the girl off into the desert to look the other way while they obtained water for the battery. Okay? Now, you don't see that on Debbie Reynolds films. You won't even see that in a Charlton Heston movie. It was, you know, kind of a racy moment. It's just <laughs> a moment of, of a true realism. Now, but... What really got me excited it was the same night watching TV, on came this grainy black and white I, I never miss a monster film. i I, uh, I happen to be addicted to monster films. and uh, on came the uh, <laughs> on came Frankenstein meets the space monster. Now, if you ever get a chance to see that, that is a classic of the genre. and uh, it it really is. It's got it all going. It's got it's Frankenstein meets the space monster. And uh, it came on uh, with, the, with the, you know, grainy black and white. You could just see they're using they're using film that they got on some surplus market someplace. You know, overaged film, and it's grainy. And the the camera jiggles a little bit. They did. They couldn't afford to rent two tripods. They only had one tripod. See, so you could tell which camera had the tripod when they'd switched. You know, so it was really kind of great. And, and it had a fantastic premise. See, I'll give you the premise. The premise was. Uh, was about the space program, you know NASA, and they were sending up these rockets with with guys in the you know uh, astronauts. Well, they got an idea. This was before, of course, uh, we sent up uh, all the moonshots. This is an old film, it's about 1963 or something like that, and uh, and they 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 began to worry. See about the fact that they were going to lose a man one day. Says so we're going we're going to lose somebody. They're going to shoot him up there. Why don't we just take... We, uh, we've worked out a new system. So they, they created a, a, a space... <laughs> they a capsule with this guy trapped in it, right? But he's not an ordinary man. He has been killed in a, in a terrible accident earlier someplace, and they took a brain and put it in his head. Now, you can see already. They've got something going see. So if he gets killed, again, it won't be anything. He's just, a, you know, he's, a, he's already been dead. And they they created a Frankenstein. And how they did it was by nuclear inversion. And, uh, yes, they got this guy in there. Now, okay, you got it going. Now they shot him up in the air like that. But unbeknownst to them, there was a, a flying saucer was observing this. And in the flying saucer were these evil, these terrible evil people from another planet, which incidentally was named Home, uh, <laughs> which I kind of like that touch. And in the in this uh, in this uh, flying saucer was the head monster. He wasn't even a monster. He was a you know he was he lived on another planet. You can't call him a monster. Let's not be prejudiced. Uh, he had a round head that looked like a ping pong ball, and uh, yes, and he was the most lascivious uh, denizen of another planet I've ever seen in my life. And uh, he was sitting there like, cackling at the controls, and he had little pointed ears. And, uh, and and with him was this fantastic seven-foot-tall woman who was very well endowed, and it looked like she was wearing some kind of a lampshade on her head. And uh, she was the princess. They kept referring to her as the princess. And why were they here on Earth? Well, now that's where the plot got interesting. It seemed that there had been a nuclear war on their planet, and, uh, and they had been out on an expedition in their ship, right, with the princess. And the nuclear war wiped out the entire population. And as he said, those who are not dead are the unlucky ones. Those who are dead are the lucky ones. The unlucky ones will go mad, and then they will die. We are all that is remaining of our magnificent race. So we have come to Earth to get breeding stock, to repopulate our planet. In other words, they have come to Earth to capture a lot of girls and they did they, they landed their spaceship in Puerto Rico and of course there's a lot of parties with girls laying on the beach and these guys are running around capturing girls and bringing them back oh it was a very complex plot but the point that, I, that, that, that made me feel good about was that I was watching the credits now a lot of you people don't watch the credits of any space or monster or sci-fi film you see do you that's right that's the, you should watch the credits uh, first of all, the hero in this was played by the guy that does the Pathmark commercials now. Yes, uh, you can see his his career has really uh, sort of gone up and down. See, <laughs> so here he is. He's now he's now selling pork chops, but in those days he was he was a scientist and he was creating Frankenstein's. And at one point he said the greatest line that I've heard in recent days to come out of one of these these clinker movies. He looked right at the camera. And here he is, surrounded by test tubes and things going and in the back you and you could see shots of his oscilloscope making green lines all it was in black and white by the way. You knew it was green, you know. And you once in a while something would go and the spark would go. You know, they always have these things with the spark gaps in the monster movies. And he's he's wearing a white coat and he has a stethoscope. He's always carrying a stethoscope. Never used it once in the film, but he always got it, see. That means he's a doctor and he's official. So he turns to his nurse, who had all the acting ability of a mechanized clothespin, and he turns to her and he says, why are we doing all this? <laughs> he looks right out at you. and you, you he says, that's a great question. Why are we doing all this? And uh, he says, I don't know why we're doing all this. And uh, later on, Dr. Nadir, who was the evil guy in the in the spaceship, he said, he had another good line, too. He said, uh, he says, Ah, princess. He had a slight curious accent, a little bit like a Bavarian accent. He said, Ah, princess, we have received signals on the 104.5 kilocycles with interrupted waves coming from KC 1729. And she says, What does that mean? I don't know. Yes, he caught the spirit of the evening quite well. But in the credits it was directed, produced and written by an old friend of mine. I had never realized this. I had known this guy for years, and he did it. How would you like to be watching the credits of a of a of a fantastically funny space film? And all of a sudden, you realize your friend Aki did it, and he never mentioned it to you. So my friend did this. And I, I, I you know, it was, it was one of the one of the most grotesque monster films I've ever seen. Which reminds me, this is WOR, New York. Speaking of monsters. <laughs> George. <laughs> Has it ever occurred to you that you may be living on another planet to the rest of the world? That's right. That that New York, the island of Manhattan specifically, could be a giant meteorite that hit right here in the middle of the water millennia ago, and produced its own race of natives. And we've been wondering why we're you know why New York is so different from Kansas. Well, it could very well be that we are the men from outer space. Would uh, you please? Do you have that acne spot in there? Right, a touch of realism. Excuse me.
2: What's your name, please? Mrs. Delaval. Mrs. Delaval. Right. I see you've just finished checking out here at Acme, and All we'd right. like to invite you to do a comparison shopping test with us. Right. We want you to go to a store that you select yourself and duplicate the order that you just made here at Acme, item for item, pound for pound, and then come back and we'll compare the sales slips from that other store and the Acme slip. Would you do that with us? No, no, it's the catch. It sounds kind of easy. Oh, there is no catch <laughs> and it is easy. We just want you to go and duplicate the order and come back and we'll check the two sales slips. Today, you mean? Sure, right now. I would love to. Okay, here's Mrs. Delaval back from the other store and you've done your comparison shopping, right? Right. What was the result from the other store? Uh thirty five eighty at the other store and thirty four oh seven at ACME. Okay, Mrs. Delaval. You've had a chance to figure the savings? Dollar seventy three at you, ACME. You saved a seventy three at ACME. Right. Thank you very much, Mrs. Delaval. Okay.
0: Rose Kennedy shares with the world some very personal thoughts in her new book, Times to Remember. She writes for the first time about her retarded daughter and about Jack and Jackie's romance. You can read it all in the March issue of Woman's Day magazine because only Woman's Day is serializing this extraordinary new book. What's more, the March Woman's Day has ten big pages of price-right fashions to sew, knit, crochet, or buy. Look for the yellow cover with the luscious chocolate cream dessert. Right, right, uh, right. <laughs> well, I, you know, I I, uh, I called my friend then today. See, I had to do it. Now, I didn't even know he made this classic. And there it was, written, directed, <laughs> shot. Yeah, he did everything except uh, play uh, Dr. Nadir in it. it. had great names. You should have seen the monster. The monster's name was Mull. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was Mull. And uh, he was uh, a fantastic monster. For some reason or other, they carried him around in their in their spaceship behind the tremendous set of bars. And uh, he was like a like an interplanetary uh, waste disposal. That whenever they they uh, they ran into somebody they didn't like, they threw it to the monster. <laughs> he grab it, eat him up. <laughs> so today I called my friend. I mean, you know, I call him up. And, uh, he, and he's a very distinguished type and a highly creative filmmaker I mean, you know, he's the kind of guy that did all kinds of stuff for 2001 He works for Stanley Kubrick and they're you know, very official so um, I called him up and uh, the, he came on the line and I hadn't talked to him for a long time see, it's one of those things you know, you, you have friends that you don't talk to for maybe a year, maybe two years go by And yet they're great friends. He's a a great friend of mine. So the phone rings, and I could hear it ringing in his office, and I said, please put him on the phone. His name is Bob Gaffney. And uh, the girl says, "Uh, yes. So uh, she says, who shall I say is calling? I said, will you tell him Dr. Nadir is on the phone? And uh, (laughs) he comes on. He says, hello? And I says, hello. And he recognized my voice. He says I was afraid somebody'd see that. I says, "I saw it, and I think I'm not alone." He says, "I don't know what to do about that thing." He says that was shut up 10 years ago. And he said that thing comes back every couple of months to haunt me. He says I can't get rid of it. And he says that thing has a life of its own now. I says, "Well, it certainly had a life of its own last night on <laughs> on the old poop tube." I said, it came through loud and clear, Bob. And he says, boy, that thing, he says, you can't kill it. He says, that's like a, a, 63, a 63 Buick. You can't kill it with a sledgehammer. And I says, well, what do you mean? He says, you know that thing is now out on 16 millimeter? He says, they rent it out. He says, that thing is being rented out all over the world. And he said, they show that all over the place. And he says, it's the worst thing I ever did. I said, well, Bob, there's a lesson in that for all of us. He says, You know, I made a great mistake in that film. I said, What did you do? He said, I put my name on it. <laughs> he said That's, he says, It's fantastic. And I said, Well tell me about it, you know. How how, how did you know, you you made this this film and and uh, how did it come about? Well he said, How it came about? He said, it's a kind of a sordid story. He said I was he said I was on uh, you know Tap City at that point and uh, he said, I was looking around for something to do. And he said, This uh this guy comes along and he says, I want want to make a I want to make a real schlock sci-fi film. He said, I don't have no script. I don't have nothing. He says, but I got some dough, and I want to make this film. And he says, but we don't have no money, hardly. So he says, at that point, I said, you've come to your man. He thought it would die a quick death. He said, you know what, pick up a couple of bucks and go on. He said, so it turns out that we shot it. Now, if you're interested in the technique of movies, uh, Bob, uh, or rather, Joe, listen carefully now. Come on, get back here now. Tell him, tell him to worry about the coffee break later. You'll get it when it's, when it's his turn. He sa- I says, how long did it take you to make that film? He says, well, five days. <laughs> five days? Do you realize shooting a film in five days is like the equivalent of writing War and Peace in 12 minutes? I said, uh, five days? He says, yeah. He said, the, the guy wanted to do it in three but I, I, I raised so much hell. He said that they increased the budget, and we did it in five days in Puerto Rico. I said, Oh, Puerto Rico! I said, Yeah, that's that's a very good. He said, Yeah, well, we got a little bit. He said, But we couldn't get any time out in the sun. He said because we were working like crazy. He said, Have you ever tried to shoot a feature-length film in five days? And I said, You probably had to include a lot of stuff you didn't want to include. So you better believe it. He said, For example, he says if you look carefully, there was one scene. He said where you could see a lot of people watching a shoot through the bushes. He says, yeah, you know they were shooting in Puerto Rico. People came and they were looking through the bushes at them while they were shooting. He says, "If you look carefully in the background, you can see all those people watching us." There was a guy selling hot dogs there to the crowd. I said, "Well, Bob," I said, "That that must have been tough." He said, yeah, he said, "I tried to cut it out." He said, "But they kept coming around." I said, "Well, what was the worst problem you had shooting the film?" He said, "Well, no money. He's no money." And he says for example he says all the space guns that are used in the film by the way space guns played a great role in this film these guys were always appearing see wearing these space suits and they would shoot the people who were giving them trouble see so they go wham you know pow pow you would go he says well no we we uh, we had to get space guns I said where'd you get them he says Woolworth <laughs> he says we went down, we bought a bunch of of Woolworth space guns I said you mean you got Woolworth space guns yeah he said, but uh, we had to make them look kind of different, so what we did, we put, we put mirrors in the front, so they looked like they were flashing, see? They had mirrors in the, in the front there, in the barrel. And he said, now, the actual space gun had just a little spring in there, and when the kid... It was plastic. He said, when the kid would uh, pull the trigger, it would go boing, 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 And he said, so we didn't want that. We didn't want them going boing. He said, so we put a mirror in the front. He says, now, of course, we didn't realize what we caused then. I said, what happened, Bob. He says, well, then we had to shoot all shots into the sun, so there's the space guns. He says, and it made everything really, uh, we had had problems with contrast then. Half the time you couldn't see anybody's faces, but you could see their guns going. I said, well, I thought that was a good effect, Bob. He said, well, you didn't want it. He said, but that's the way it was. I said, well, that was nice. I said, what else did you do then? He said, well, uh," we had to have a spaceship, and we didn't have no budget for a spaceship. I said, well, it was a spaceship movie. How can you make a movie without a budget for a spaceship? He said, well, that's what I pointed out to the producer. And he says, well, you've got you to figure out something. That's why I hired you. He said, so we went over and we rented a geodesic dome. You know, one of these little ones. It looks like a, little, like, a little, uh, <laughs> like a little igloo. And he says, and we sprayed it silver. At that point, we put it up on sticks. And we put a ladder up to the side of it, and that was our spaceship. Well, it's a very convincing spaceship. Here they are sitting there. And I, and he says, well, we shot the rest of the film in the studio. And I said, in the studio? He said, yeah. He said, uh, we, we had a studio out in Long Island. And it says, actually, it was a converted dance hall. It was owned by the American Legion. And uh, we shot it in the American Legion Hall. And uh, <laughs> I said, well, that was kind of great. How long did that take? He said, well, that was four days. I said, you shot the whole thing in nine days? Well, that's pretty good shooting, Bob. You pulled it in, yeah. And uh, he said, "Well, not exactly." He said, "Our schedule called for seven and a half." He says, "We shot it in nine days, though." He said, and, uh, "So because of the extra day and a half, he says the the uh, producer wouldn't give me my percentage of the profits." <laughs> I said, "Oh, he said, yeah." He said, "Because we need quite a time." I said, "Well, Bob, uh, what was what was the most difficult thing you had to face on the show? He said, "Well, I'll tell you what it was." He said, uh, "He says, you know, when you when you're shooting a space science fiction, you got a monster thing there." He said, uh, you have a problem. He says, because actors cannot relate to being from, say, an outer planet. He says, they, 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 tend, to, they tend to not uh, believe their role. And he said, so I had to play it very straight. I told him this was a serious film, and we're doing this because it's a serious sociological study of the ramifications of outer space exploration. And he says, all the actors said, oh, yeah, I see that. And he said, we would shoot a scene... And halfway through the scene, the, the, the actor would start laughing. He said, we were wasting a lot of film. And so, he says, we, had a, we, we really had a lot of trouble with people. He says then we had another thing. He says, one time, two spacemen came running up over the hill. And he says, and one guy was running one way. One guy was running. They had these plastic bubbles over their head. He says, and they ran into each other. And one guy cracked his bubble. I said, what'd you do? He says well, we didn't have any budget for no more bubbles. He says, we had to eliminate him from the film. I says, you mean the actor was out of work? He says, you're damn right. He broke the bubble. That was his phone. He says, so we paid him off for a day and a half. That was $34. We paid him off for a day and a half of shooting. That was the end of it. He's out of work. I, I says, well, that's, that's great, Bob. Now, now we talked about 10 minutes about this film. And he says, you know, he said, it's terrible. He says, I, I, I'm really worried because it's on, my name is on this now. And he says, it's probably going to go on forever. He says, I can see the year 2001, and they're still playing his film, and all the other films have disappeared. He says, a recurring nightmare. He says, and ultimately, he says, I can see some French critic picking his film up and making it into a great artwork, and they will call it the Gaffney movement, and, <laughs> and you know, the Gaffney view of film. So I said, well, Bob, well, that's, that's something you produced, created, wrote, directed, shot. You know, he's a cameraman. You shot the film, he did it all in nine days he says yep that's right he says one great one great uncontrollable burst of mediocrity I did it I said Bob that that must have been some excitement he says yep it was I said Bob you know I can't help but thinking of you in another time in another place he says yep that goes for double Now, I'm going to tell you a story that I've never told anybody, never told it on the air. But, uh, you know, like anybody in show business, I have done many curious things. And many things I have done (laughs) have no relationship to radio or television. But they're all deeply involved in show business. I remember one night in the Mediterranean. I'm speaking of the Mediterranean Sea, the ocean, right? Right deep in the bowels of an American carrier, aircraft carrier. Temperature down below decks in that aircraft carrier, 115, maybe. It was hot. And I am lying in a bunk, and the ship is is hurtling its way through the nighttime sea. And we're off the coast of Turkey. And in fact, we're heading... Around the great Golden Horn, it's two o'clock in the morning, and I'm lying in the bunk sweating my head off. Oh, it's we. Really, have you ever been so hot and so sweaty and so tired that you're kind of out of your head? Have you ever had that happen to you? Well, I don't know. Most people in their lives haven't. I must admit, I don't think most people have ever driven themselves to the total limits of human endurance. Most people work their eight-hour day, come home, drink their beer, and go to bed. Uh, And that's about the extent of it. And uh, so they don't necessarily find uh, themselves ever really driven to the limits, uh, which are beyond your control. So here we are on this aircraft carrier. Why I was there is not even part of the story. It's peripherally part of the story, but not really. But if you've ever been aboard an aircraft carrier that's in action, I'm not talking about an aircraft carrier that's sitting over here at Pier 47. I'm talking about an aircraft carrier that's out doing its sweaty job. You have. Well, uh, this this particular aircraft carrier was the last carrier that had been commissioned. During, well, it was not the last carrier commissioned in World War II. This was not World War II I'm talking about. This carrier... Uh, was the last remaining World War II carrier that was on active fleet duty as a carrier. You want me to give you its number? CVA-9. Aha. So any of you Navy types will know immediately what CVA-9 was, and this was an attack carrier. Uh, it's, It's, by the way, still in operation, and this carrier is now... Uh, being used for uh, anti-sub. No, it was not the Ranger. You're wrong. Anyway, this this baby was going through. It was a beautiful ship, but it had, was not air conditioned below decks, which the later ones were. Uh, yes, they were, as a matter of fact. But uh, nevertheless, this was hotter than the hinges of hell. And we were we were barreling through the sea, and I was way down below decks, lying in a bunk, which was. Uh, about the width of your average bookshelf, and about that, that softness. And uh, hot, absolutely, bombed out of my head with with heat. It was 115 down there, and you could you put your hand out on the bulkhead, which was, of course, uh, armor plate steel, and you could just lay your hand on there, and water would drip down the walls. It's very humid over in that part of the world anyway. And out the sea, it's very humid and salt. And every time, you drink the water that comes out of the little faucets, you know, they have these little drinking fountains way down below, and it tastes brackish and salty and lukewarm. And uh, so we're laying, yeah, they had it, well, see, we were on, this was on uh, tropical duty, and they had it laced with salt. So we're lying in the bunk there, see, I'm lying in a sack, hotter than hell. And now, up to this point, we, we had been working so hard this, this group of guys I was with this particular mission we were involved in so involved and so long that we had gone maybe 72 hours without sleep maybe even longer I'd say close to 4 days without sleep have you ever done that? this, this produces a curious psychological physiological effect that coupled with the heat and everything started to seem funny Everything, everything that happened seemed funny, and up above us, right directly above us, we were right under the cat, which is the catapult. Now that particular uh, carrier had a had a steam catapult, and uh, sleeping under the catapult was an experience. And they were they were operating 24-hour a day combat patrol. That old CAP was going up there every 90 minutes. Another flight would co- would take off. And they were a 90-minute rotation. Every ninety minutes a flight would take off and another and the, the flight that was out, the patrol that was out would land and you'd hear them. You'd hear the arresting gear. And that was always the, the prelim before they you'd hear that uh the bullhorn righty uh, it on ships <laughs> you'd hear that there's a banjo on the grove, banjo on the grove. And you know that another plane has come, then you'd hear that you'd hear that bounce and a plane has landed and then you'd hear another thing a man on the grove. another one landing up above you and then about 30 seconds later they'd start launching, now the launch sound is a special sound you hear this thing cocking itself what it is is a great steam operated slingshot that's really what it is it's a, it's a giant slingshot, an enormous piston that literally hurls the A4D, which is the planes we were flying, the A4D literally hurls these babies right off into the into the into the void, right down the carrier deck. And incidentally, you, if you're a flyer, if you're a pilot, and uh, I must say, uh, uh, you have never really experienced the ultimate in thrills until you have been in a in a uh, I'm talking about flying thrills until you have been in an aircraft. That is landing on the deck of a tossing carrier <laughs> in a in a spanking wind. Oh, wow, we! And I have done this on several hairy occasions. Holy smokes! So, nevertheless, here we are. It's two o'clock in the morning. We've been up for 80 hours now, maybe. Sweaty, hot, and I'm lying there in nothing but skivvies, t-shirt, shorts. That's it absolutely just drenched the bunk is so wet so it's always wet actually in that climate but it was it was so wet that the bunk was like sleeping on a sponge just you could just feel that water just all over and it was clammy and at the same time you were so hot and i'm lying in the darkness right and everything is funny so you hear this (sighs) give me a little echo joe i'll let them know what it sounds like because That's, that's the echo. That's the sound of a ship being launched. Uh, there's a long pause between the cocking of the mechanism and then off he goes. And another guy's been hurled out into the night in his A4D. Well, I'm lying in the bunk. And everything is, is kind of funny to me. Now, you reach a point where you're so tired that you can't sleep. You ever gotten to that point? You're physically tired. Your mind keeps running on and on like it's some kind of a giant flywheel. It won't stop. And and I had been trying to sleep now for about a half an hour. We are We are now off the coast of, actually, we passed the coast of Turkey, and we're now in the immediate vicinity of Lebanon, Incidentally, there is a lot of uh, enemy action going on. I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening. So I'm lying in the bunk, hot, sweaty, and I turned on the light. Every one of these bunks had a little tiny light above it. This was down in the officer's quarters, a little tiny light above it. Now, the EM bunks were very different. They had, they had these whole pipe things, and uh, the whole, the light was central above them. But down here, this was in, in, uh, in junior grade officer's quarters. They had a little light, see, so I turned this light on. I was trying to sleep, see, I turned the light on. Liner, sweating. And and I and I reached down into into this this uh, this sea bag that I had. I reached down looking for something to do, something to read, see, and I pull this thing out and I start to read this book. And and I started to laugh. I was reading it. I was, I was laughing. I couldn't stop laughing. Now, I knew it was a hysterical, tired laugh. Nothing to do with how good this stuff was. And I look across the, the, the darkness, and there on the bunk across this little stateroom from me, lying in the dark, sweating like hell, was Bob Gaffney, the man who committed the uh, <laughs> Frankenstein meets the space monster epic that was on television last night. This was before he did that. And uh, Bob is half asleep, and he's tired. We've been working. And Bob says, what are you laughing at? I said, I don't know, Bob, just everything. He says, yeah, I know what you mean. And then, Whooow! off it goes again another way. And we start to laugh. We were laughing at the sound of planes being shot off. And then we began to ad-lib. A giant movie script in the darkness. We're, we're laughing like hell, we think. And couldn't remember a word of this the next morning, but we're, we're ad-libbing a movie script at, at 2 and 3 in the morning in the sweat and the heat. And all of a sudden, this clanging bell goes through the ship. Bang, 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 bang. It's GQ, General Quarters. Well, we jumped up out of our bunk and ran down through the dark corridors, which are lit with these dim, red lights, to our battle stations. Sweat and heat. My battle, uh, our battle stations incidentally were down below in the intelligence, down in the, down in the CAP intelligence compartment, where they had this great radar screen. We were down below there, and we couldn't stop laughing. And the, the lieutenant commander is down below looking at it. He said, what, 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 what's up now? Come on, take it easy, you guys. And we, we were laughing, uncontrolled laughter, wearing the big, big Navy helmets and all. And that night was just one long, curious, involuted nightmare with the heat and the script and all the, uh, all the sounds of the ships being launched high above us on the flight deck. And up above, we're hurling through the night off the coast of Lebanon and Syria. We're at general quarters, and the radar screen keeps whirling round and round. It was a fantastic, uh, total nightmare. And so, 20 minutes later, after they've called GQ off, Bob and I are sitting in the wardroom, soaked in sweat, and drinking Navy coffee, trying to remember the script that we had invented. I saw pieces of it in The Spaceman Meets. Frankenstein, The space. I really did, that strange nightmare quality to it. These are things that even Stanley Kubrick would never understand. No way. Uh,
1: This
0: is WOR New York.